Good evening, church. Well, you have to, I have to admit, I mean, what a start to the night already. Amen? Chris's worship team, can we give him a round of applause? Cam's word. <laughs> Hannah comes up afterwards, kills it with another word, and then David. I'm just like, wow, I mean, you guys make it hard for a guest speaker. You know what I mean? It's hard to follow up with that. So I just want to jump in and say, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you might remember Pastor Rob Shepard was here, right? Everybody remember what he talked about? What was it? Complaining. Yeah, complaining, right? Hey, let's stop complaining. You think, wow, a whole message on complaining? Well, let me tell you what pastors and speakers hope for when they give a message. They hope that afterwards, folks are going to kind of gather together and talk about it a little bit, unpack it, talk about how it convicted them, you know? And, and we did that. We did that after church. We did it when we went out to dinner. And there was a common thread that was running through all the conversations. It was, it was, everyone was saying it was a very practical message, something that we needed to be reminded of. We needed to be reminded of it. See, when we're kids, we're told all the time, right? Don't hit your sister. Share. Be grateful. Stop complaining. But then you, we become adults, and we don't hear it, even though we need to at times. So that's what's so wonderful. We come and we get to hear something like that. First Peter or 2 Peter, he said, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the faith. I think it's important because we have a tendency, and Stanley said, we don't drift in good directions. We have a tendency to forget. And I think tonight's message is a good reminder as well. But before I get into that, I want to tell you a little story. It's a true story that I'm certain that some of you have heard. So if you have, please bear with me. It was 10 years ago, on January 12th, at about 7.51 a.m., when a young man, casually dressed, right, T-shirt, jeans, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap, walked into the Metro subway station in downtown D.C. He stood near a garbage can, he leaned against the wall, and he took out a violin. He left the violin case open, he threw some change in it and some dollar bills for seed money as people walked by. And over the next 43 minutes, this man would play six classical pieces while over 1,100 people walked by. Now, being that it was in the middle of D.C., it was mostly your government workers, you know, right? Some bureaucrats in your business suits and business skirts hurrying off to work. And most of them, they didn't pay this guy any mind, let alone any money. But to be fair, street performers in urban areas, it's not uncommon. They blend in with the landscape. But as this violinist played, his music resonated up to the ceiling, down the long corridors. It was echoing throughout the place. And now like me, if you've ever walked by a street performer, maybe you shared the same emotions that some of these folks did on that morning. Sometimes you're amused right? Sometimes you might even feel a little guilty because, hey, this is maybe how they're earning their money. Perhaps a tinge of frustration. You know why? Because I'm in a hurry. I got places to be. I got people to see. I really don't have the time. But what makes this so different on this day is that this man was being filmed. Why was he being filmed? Because he's one of the greatest classical musicians in the world. Playing six of the most elegantly composed pieces ever written. 
on one of the most expensive violins ever made. His performance on that day was set up by the Washington Post as an experiment in perceptions and priorities. Would people perceive that they were in the presence of greatness? Would they stop, take a moment, pay attention? Would they interrupt their schedule for this? See, folks, on that day, in an ordinary setting, the extraordinary was present. The violinist's name? Joshua Bell. Internationally acclaimed musician. Just three days prior, Bell played at the Boston Symphony Hall, where just average seats ran for like 100 bucks a piece. But in the Metro, he played for almost 45 minutes. Listen, on an original Stradivarius that was made in 1713, worth three and a half million dollars. Right? Three and a half minutes into his set, Bell got his first donation. One dollar. One dollar. At the end of his set, he netted a whopping $32. $32. Afterwards, it's interesting. This is what Bell said to the Washington Post. He said, you know, it was kind of a strange feeling that people were hmm, ignoring me. Usually when I play at big symphony halls, I get upset if somebody won't stop coughing or a cell phone goes off. But here, and I like what he said here, here in this setting, listen, my expectations quickly diminished. I was happy when somebody threw in a bill instead of some change. This from a man who commands almost $1,000 a minute. It was the extraordinary disguised as the ordinary. Does that remind you of anyone? Because over 2,000 years ago, God did something similar. See, only this person, they weren't wearing a ball cap. And they weren't playing a violin. And they crossed a much wider gap than the metro. Wrapped in the rags of humanity. Jesus Christ came down to subway earth. John 1.14 said, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It would be perhaps the ultimate camouflage. A test, if you will, of people's perceptions and priorities. Begs the question, I wonder what they said after his performance. Wow. He have amazing power? Oh, yeah. Plenty of it. Incredible wisdom, this guy? Yeah. Unmatched. Exemplary character? Perfect. But there's one word. One word that describes his performance more than any other. Humility. Humility. That's what I want to talk to you about tonight. If you don't know, humility is one of the 24 virtues of our Praxis Discipleship model. We all know that, right? 
The one, the six, the 12, the 24, 24 virtues that are manifest in us when we walk in the 12 pathways. Humility is one of them. Before I read the scripture verse for us tonight, though, I think it's wise if I define it. Because I think humility has been, how do I say, misrepresented. It isn't weakness. It isn't frailty. It isn't kick sand in my face behavior. It's strength. It's strength. And in fact, in their book, Humility is the New Smart, Hessen Lugwood said this, it's a mindset. I believe it's a heart attitude that results in us, you and me, not being so self-centered, ego-defensive, self-enhancing, self-promotional, and closed-minded. I think it's important for us to get a look at that before we get into our core scripture. To have a little idea what we're talking about. I think if we need to be reminded sometimes not to complain, I think maybe, just maybe, we might need to be reminded about some humility. Amen? If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, let's turn to our core scripture verse for tonight. Philippians 2, 3-8. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. See, when I graduated, graduate degree a few years ago, the church bought me this Bible. It's called the People's Bible. I'd never heard of it. It says on the front, it's your visual guide to the Bible's most searched verses. See, what the authors did is they collected all of the searches on BibleGateway.com in a year. And they collected them all together and said, okay, we're going to rack and stack from level one to level six all the search scriptures. Now, level one scripture is the most frequently searched scripture. And it's written in big, bold print all the way down to a level six scripture, which maybe isn't really checked out that much of your Times New Roman 8 maybe, right? It's almost like reading an, an eye chart from the really big to the really small verses of scripture. Why am I telling you that? Because tonight's scripture, level one. One of the most searched, read, recited, remembered scriptures in all the Bible. And I think it's interesting, considering the sign of the times, that this is a, out of 31,000 scriptures, this is a level one. And I think it drives the point home that your and my challenge tonight, in the short time we're together, it's not in being able to remember or recall a scripture, or even read a scripture. It's in living it. It's in living it. So, let's just take a moment and read it together. It says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Oh, excuse me, I got a small cold tonight. This passage, it's part of a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi that he loved. He loved this church. 
He even begins the letter by saying, when I think about you, I thank God. And then shortly after that, he, he, he gives us another level one verse, and he says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you, we know that, right? He's going to carry it on to the day of Christ Jesus. But like all churches, Philippi had problems too. In fact, in chapter 4, we hear about two women who had a public disagreement, and Paul is telling them, and I think he's telling us the same thing tonight. He says, could you please be of one mind? See, I believe that this letter, Philippians, is given to us today so we would know how to relate to one another. How to relate to one another. And it's anchored by chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. F.B. Meyer is a biblical commentator. And he said, these six passages of Scripture are, are just majestic. Majestic in their pronouncements. Almost unapproachable. And I'm thinking to myself, majesty? But it's talking about humility. Majestic? Humility? It, it sounds like a contradiction, right? A paradox, at least. I would say this to you tonight. I believe that Paul is giving you and I one of the greatest paradoxes in all of history. God Almighty, clothed in humility. God Almighty, with the, all the power of the universe, clothed in flesh, in humility. If we're to follow Paul's advice and Jesus' example, I believe, I believe that you and I have to follow a similar path as well. Listen. I think we can all admit that we live in a time of unprecedented selfishness. Among many things, social media has made it possible for you and I to appreciate and then to advertise our own glory to a much greater degree and reach a much wider audience than ever before. It was Augustine who said, thanks, man. <clears throat> I don't know what that's all about. Right on cue. It was Augustine who coined the phrase, Latin phrase, incurvatus in C, to describe sin. It means to turn inward on oneself. It's, it's living a life that is entirely Inward focused instead of outward focused. The question for us tonight, for you, for me, is are we willing? Are we willing to appear ordinary for the sake of his extraordinary? Are you willing to do that? It comes down to this. When we demonstrate Christ-like humility. It brings attention to him, not to us. And that often happens without a lot of fanfare. How do we do it? How do we do it, though? How do you and I find, embrace, and demonstrate Christ-centered humility in a self-saturated world? How do we do it, then? 
Glad you asked. I think we do it by following and embracing the five paradoxical paths that Jesus modeled. And we're going to go over them. And as I discuss them, I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Have a conversation. Where am I, Lord, on my journey of humility? Let's look at the five paradox paths together. Number one, paradox number one. The greatest fulfillment is found in emptiness. In emptiness. In Aristotle's writings, he did a paper called Ethics. He uses a warped piece of wood to describe human nature. And he said this. In order to eliminate the warping, a skilled woodworker, we could say a carpenter, carpenter savior, applies pressure in the opposite direction, eventually bending it straight. That bending is you and I emptying ourselves of our unrestrained ego. Look, some ego is good. A healthy, restrained ego is good. It it compels us to be better. But an unrestrained ego, you know the one, the one that has that desire to be first, to be seen, to be noticed, to be promoted, to make everything and every conversation about what? The big me. That's your unrestrained ego. It's the same ego that Ryan Holiday talks about in his book, Ego is the Enemy. He said this, ego It's that petulant little child in each and every one of us that chooses to get their way over anything or anyone else. It needs to be better than, smarter than, bigger than, more wealthier than, better looking than, faster than, and I dare to say even more spiritual than everyone else. Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate, wrote an incredible book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And listen to what he said. He said, you know, we, you and I, we're limited by this excessive confidence in what we believe we know. Limited by our excessive confidence in what we believe I know and our apparent inability to acknowledge the full extent of our ignorance. Come on! This path of humility, it's a test of our life and what it means to live in light of the gospel. What did Paul say? Paul said your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now we understand attitude. We know there's good attitude. Look at her, man. She got some attitude. And we know there's bad attitude. Watch your attitude. Right, But Jesus is telling us, hey, have the same attitude as I do. Have the same as me. Don't just come and say this stuff. Let me see it in your life. So what kind of attitude did Jesus have? Although he was holy God, he did not count equality with, a, with, a thing, equality with God a thing to be grasped. The NIV says he did not use it to his advantage. In other words, though Jesus shared in all the rights and power of heaven, he never used it for his advantage. He used it for others. Can you see the irony? That we collect and we get all these things to to tell people who we are. And he had it. And he emptied himself of it. There's the paradox. Bill Hybel said, this may be the most controversial chapter in all the Bible. And we get to share it tonight. Amen? And he said this too. If you want to be truly great, then the direction you must go is down. You must descend into greatness. Greatness is not the measure of self-will, 
But self-abandonment, the more you lose, the more you gain. Listen, folks, humility relieves us of the stress of trying to be perfect all the time. And it positions us in a place where God can lift us up. Amen? James 4.10 says, humble yourselves. Put your name there. Hey, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. At Regent University, Dr. Kathleen Patterson is the resident expert on servant leadership. And she said, you know, there's a difference between choosing to serve and being a servant. She said, when we choose to serve, we pick when, how, who, and how much. Essentially, we're still in charge. And you know what I found? Is that if the payoff is big enough, we'll all choose to serve. Right? We'll all choose to serve. The idea, she says, is to become a servant, characterized by a life of servanthood with the end goal of being like Christ. Before we go to the second one, let me just give you a quick reminder. You're probably not going to hear this message at work. This is why we need to be here. This is why we need to be reminded that the greatest fulfillment in our life is found in emptying that life. Amen? We could stop there, but I don't. I got another one. Ready? Boom. Paradox number two. It's wrong to think first about your rights. Let me let you mull that over for a little bit. You know the phrase, not counting equality, a thing to be grasped? That sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, that's good Bible study stuff. That's devotional content right there. But um, what if you're in the parking lot and you're about to pull in the parking space, you're waiting for someone to pull out, and right before you pull in, someone else flies in and cuts you off and takes it. What about if you've done all the work in your job? You know how many hours you work? And somebody else gets the credit. Uh. What about that ministry position you know you're qualified for? And they give it to someone else. Oh, my God. I had a friend of mine one time was at Walmart. You know, they got like 30 registered. They had two openers, about 50 people there. <laughs> he was like number, I don't know, eight or nine in line, two lines. And, and then, we've all been here, right? The, one of the cashier opens up, ding, I'm open. And then everyone stops for a second and they do the odds in their head. If I go, we, right? We've all, uh, and who's moving? Who's going? So he kind of hem and haws and he says, okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. He runs over. He gets in line, and he was like number four. So he cut his time by people in front of him by like 50%. He's like, all right, Vegas, I got it. I'm good, right? Standing there about two minutes, ringing people up. Two and a half minutes go by. All of a sudden, this elderly female steps over. This is my friend, and she stands with her bags right in front of him. She gets right in front of him, right? He's like. So he says. Ma'am, like, has everyone just lost their mind? 
right? He's like, excuse me. You know what she says? I was in front of you over there. Look, that gave me chills. It's so funny. I'm not sure I would have done really well. I don't know. I'm a... Look, when it comes to our pride, it comes to our ego, you and I, we're willing to have a conversation about curbing it down a little. You know what I mean? But my rights? My, my rights? <clears throat> I have rights. I have inalienable rights. I'm not even sure what that means, but I have them. I know I do. The Constitution tells me. I mean, equality is a good thing, right? Right? What if somebody takes advantage of me? Then what? Let me ask you a question. Who had more rights than Jesus? He had equality with God, remember? But he never used it to his benefit. He only used his power and his rights to benefit who? Other people. There's the difference. There's the difference. It's, it's not that rights don't matter. They do matter. They do. When one person violates the rights of another person, it's an injustice, it's oppression, and it deserves a defender. And while you and I, we should be known for defending the rights of others, we should never be the one who's always constantly bickering about our rights. About our rights. You know why that's important? Because when we get into this battle about my rights, it's a very slippery slope. And we have a tendency to slide right over into this Interesting place called entitlement. We slide over into entitlement. In his book, The Entitlement Cure, John Townsend defines entitlement as this belief that I'm exempt from responsibility and I'm owed special treatment. See, an attitude of entitlement causes us to demand that other people make up for our mistreatment, regardless if they were involved. Regardless. And when that happens, when entitlement begins to take root in our heart, you know what we do? We begin focusing less and less on our internal world and more and more on other people's external world. We start looking at other people. We take our eyes off ourselves. You know what John Townsend said that the cure for that is? He calls it the hard way. You need to choose the hard way. What does the hard way look like? Well, brings us back to our scripture for tonight. Let's read it. Philippians 2.3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Or... Did you ever be in high school and your teacher would give you a clue for what the, the question was going to be on the test and what would they do? Right? At least that's what ours did. So when I read this, listen. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest, but to the interest of others. If that scripture was our Bible, that was it. And we walked around with that all day long and lived it. I promise you, I promise you, people would say, wow, extraordinary in the midst of the ordinary. 
but you don't have to listen to my words. A.W. Tozer said this, few things are more depressing than that of a professed Christian defending his proposed rights and bitterly resisting any attempt to violate them. Such a Christian has never accepted the way of the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, as human beings, you and I, we have rights. Men and women have died for them. But when defending our rights supersedes our devotion to Jesus Christ, then it's a pretty good example or pretty good indicator that the needle in our life has went away from humility and towards entitlement. It's a reminder, folks, for you and for me tonight. It is wrong first to think about our rights. Number three. That one was easy. Well, let's look at number three. This one. Oh. Are you kidding me? It's really something to be nothing? Do you? Christ could have come to earth as an emperor. Deserve the highest position on earth. But that's not how he came, is it? That's not what he did. Verse 2-7 says, he took the form of a servant. Servant's an amazing word when it's applied to God. But it only begins to capture the scope of the sacrifice when we understand it in its original Greek form of that word servant, and it's doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. And you know what it means? Accurately translated, bond slave. One who voluntarily submits themselves to slavery to another. The key word, voluntarily. It means it's a choice. It means you can choose not to. You could choose not to submit your life to Jesus. But if you want to be a servant, submit it to him. When we do, on a consistent basis, it turns into a lifestyle. Listen, God intentionally chose this metaphor. He chose it because he wanted to underscore the all-encompassing impact that the gospel is supposed to have on our life. Oswald Chambers. If you don't know Oswald Chambers, Google it tonight. Read his stuff. My utmost for his highest. Amazing devotion. He said this. The passion of Christianity is that I deliberately sign away my own rights and become a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Until I do that, I don't even begin to be a saint. Ooh. Listen, the career path for the Christian, it's a little different than what all those people who haven't made that vow of devotion, what their path looks like. It's apples and oranges. You can't say, well, what about you? If you've made that devotion, then, then it's about being a bond slave and submitting our life to him. Andy Stanley wrote a book called Enemies of the Heart. And in it, he identified four things that attack our heart. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. And about jealousy, he said, it, it creates this, this thought in our mind that God owes me. God owes me because he could. And if he would have taken care of me and provided me with some of the same things that he has given people that I know in my life, I would be better off 
relationally, professionally, physically, and even spiritually. And he didn't. So really, the problem is not with other people. The challenge, the wrestling match, is between us and him. And if that's not enough, there's more. See, Paul also said, here it is. Consider others more than ourself. Okay, that's just crazy talk. See, because when we hear that, we immediately begin to, to, to kick into to justification mode and, and, and exemptions and say, look, you, I hear what he's saying. Do you hear Steve saying what he's talking about, right? Because there's no way he wants me to put my husband above me because you don't know what he's like. You want me to, to consider my wife above me? Do you know what it's like to live with her? Do you, my boss above me? My employees? The checkout girl? Right? You, these people, you above me? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to make a deal with God. I'm going to put them above me when they put me above them. Okay? I call it relational chicken. When, when you put me above you, I'll put you above me. But until then, I'm going to give you a list of reasons why I'm not going to do it. Listen, our responsibility, our call, it's not about fairness. It's about faithfulness. It's about faithfulness. Listen. Never underestimate the unique work that God can do in our life when he puts us with or under difficult people. One more time. Never underestimate the unique work that God can do in your life and my life when he puts us with or under difficult people. God has this supernatural knack for putting us in situations that require us to serve when we don't want to. You know why? Because he knows. It's going to cause all that selfishness to come to the surface. Right? And now everybody knows it and so do you, so stop lying about it. It all comes to the surface and it opens up the center for you to invite him in. Come on. Matthew 23, 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Go ahead, take that attitude home tonight. Take it to work on Monday. Take it out here in Newport News. And I promise you, I promise you, you will introduce the extraordinary in the midst of of the ordinary. I promise. Paradox number four. We're almost, this is an easy message, right? We're almost done. Paradox number four. When it comes to self-evaluation, don't always trust what you see. You know why? Because it's the self 
evaluating the self. The last time I preached at Newport News, I did a message called Blind Spots. And I define a blind spot as an area in our life that we can't see. And left unattended will hinder or injure us and those we encounter. It's Blind spots is, goes back to that axiom, you know, we've heard it where it says it causes us to judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their what? Their actions. And that's why Paul wrote to the church in Rome, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned them. Sober judgment. One of my favorites, Psalm 119 David wrote, Lord, please, Father, keep me from lying to myself. Father, keep me from lying to myself. Give me the privilege of knowing your instructions. Listen, when you're doing your self-evaluation or just kind of thinking about your life and how you're doing, if God is always telling you, hey, (laughs) you're great, Don't, I wouldn't change a thing. You're perfect. Right? Or what about this? God, this is God. Don't apologize. Stand your ground. You're right. Wait for them to come apologize to you. Right? If that's what you're hearing, that's not God. That's not God. I know you want it to be. Because I want it to be too. But it's not. On the other side, if every time you you say, God, how am I doing? And he says, you know what? Give up. You're a failure. You're not good at anything. They don't like you. Don't speak up. Don't raise your hand. Don't go because you're not qualified. They don't respect you. She doesn't care for you. He doesn't love you. If it's all of these things, that's not him either. That's the accuser of the brethren. That's our adversary who has his own knack of of saddling up next to our own brokenness and insecurities and then speaking to us. Let me tell you something about when God speaks. He's the perfect paradox. Romans eleven twenty two tells us, consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. There's both in equal measure. Can I have the worship team come on back up? We're about to wrap it up. Number one, the greatest fulfillment is found in emptiness. It's wrong to think first about our rights. It's really something to be nothing. When it comes to self-evaluation, don't always trust what you see. The last one for us tonight. True humility promotes godly ambition. So you might be asking, what is Steve saying? That I should be average? I should settle for a life of mediocrity? Huh? I should have no ambition? Do nothing great? No, I'm not. Not at all. Just the opposite. When we pursue 
God-given goals with Christ-centered humility, something supernatural happens. Something supernatural happens. And just like Jesus, humility, it won't restrain us, folks. It'll release us. That's why we follow God's example where he says in Titus, be zealots for good works. When we're too humble to do great things for God, we've ceased being humble. Humility is never an excuse for inactivity. And talking about our dreams with God, it's an essential. It's an essential for us. Humility then, tonight, rightly understood. It doesn't kill our dreams, folks. It just provides guardrails for them. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we, how do, we do it then? How do we demonstrate Christ-centered humility in a self-saturated world? spend 45 minutes a couple hours together how, how do I walk out of here different how do I really begin to, to put to practice those things that we talked about in here together tonight as a family well what I want to do is I want to give you the same things that I gave when I finished a blind spot message you know why because they work because they work and I believe that pride selfishness the lack of humility in our life, I think it hides out in our blind spot. And the bad thing about that is everybody else sees it but us. So what do we do? What do you do? What do I do when I leave here tonight? Let me give you four things. Take these with you. Number one, you need to pray. You need to pray. You need to close your eyes and just ask him, Father, is that me? Is that me, Lord? What in my life, Father, is keeping me from, from being more like you? He's the great counselor for a reason. He knows exactly what it is, and he wants to tell us. You don't think he wants to let us know gently as he does? And, says, and he's not just going to say, hey, scrap the last 30 years of your life. He's going to say, you know, yesterday... The way you spoke to your wife, that was wrong. You know when you disrespected your parents, that was wrong. You know when you were that encouraging shoulder for your friend who's really struggling, that was right. Pray. And he tell us. Number two, look for patterns. Look for patterns in, in your life. If, if you're regularly having a conversation about selfishness and pride, if that always seems to come up in your life, it's a good possibility that maybe you struggle with humility. Look for patterns in your life. Follow the breadcrumbs. Number three, if you're really courageous, ask for feedback. Find somebody you trust after service. Say, hey, you know that message? <laughs> I don't think the dude knew what he was talking about. I gotta be honest. Right? I hear what Steve's saying, but I know it doesn't apply to me. Well, that's a good place to start. Ask your friends. Do you see that in me? Because if I truly want to be more like Jesus, then I need to work on my humility. So I need you, and if you're really courageous, tell them to tell you 
in real time as it's happening. Stop what you're doing, you're being really selfish. And then see that defensiveness rise up in you, you know? You're like, oh no, that's probably it. That's probably it. And then lastly, after you've prayed, after you've looked for patterns in your life, after you've asked friends for feedback, hey, tonight, commit to making small changes, just little things, and they'll accumulate, and we eventually become a lifestyle. I was talking to my wife earlier. She said, you know what, I, I was working on that, she said, with God, and, and I started doing little things, like if I'm going to reach for some food and there's not a whole lot for everybody, I'll forego it. If, if I'm rushing to get in line in front of somebody, I'll let them go. If I'm about to say, you want about, I'll hold it after you. Small changes, folks. I know you're capable of that. We all are. Let's do that tonight. Let's begin somewhere. And I promise you, before long, you're going to be introducing the extraordinary power of the Savior of the world into the ordinary moments of everyday life. Let's worship.